Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, everybody. Mark Graben here. Welcome to episode 365 of the podcast. We're joined today um, also by video with uh, a good friend of mine, a friend of the blog, a previous podcast guest, Dan Markovitz. How are you doing, Dan? I'm doing great, Mark. Thanks so much for having me um, on the podcast again. It's nice to have a little extra contact during this uh, the COVID isolation phase. Yeah, definitely. So I'm glad we can talk and, um, you know, our, our, I don't want to say excuse, but our reason for talking, we talk all the time, we just don't record it. But our reason uh, for getting together and recording a conversation today is uh, to talk about your new book. Tell the listeners uh, what it is and, and we'll dive into that. Sure. So uh, the new book is called The Conclusion Trap, and uh, I'm in the midst of getting it set up on Amazon even as we speak. I think it should be available for purchase in a couple of weeks, but we'll have uh, more clear dates uh, in, a few, in, in a little bit. Um, and it's really, um, it's, it's about um, how to avoid, how to avoid jumping to conclusions or jumping to solutions. My goal is to help people not to solve any problems, but rather how to think about a problem so that then they can make a, a, a more intelligent, more effective way uh, approach towards actually solving the problems that they're grappling with. And this could either be an organizational problem or it could be a personal problem. Either way, I think that we have a tendency to jump to conclusions. And my goal was to help people slow down. So um, tell, tell us about the, um, you know, before we dive you know, more into um, why people jump to conclusions or why people don't want to um, spend enough time on problem statements, who, who's the intended audience for the book? Is this written for uh, fellow lean geeks or? That's a good question. I actually am hoping to not talk to, preach to the choir of uh, fellow lean geeks. You know, we've come out of, uh, in the lean environment, we've either read um, uh, Understanding A3 Thinking or Managing to Learn. Um, People have had a great deal of exposure to A3s. And let's face it, A3s, while they're incredibly powerful and worthwhile, um, many organizations use them, they're actually pretty intimidating for people that are not well well versed in and steeped in the in the lean uh, community, and I think I mean I've seen this personally when you roll unroll an A three and show it to people and here is this big thing, whether it's typed out which most people do in four point font or even if they handwrite it, it's kind of overwhelming, and when you try to introduce an A three to people who are again well versed with with lean. I think that they kind of run away from it. So what I wanted to do was talk to the non-lean community and give them a better sense of, of how to approach problems uh, without getting bogged down in the whole A3 business and what all the specific boxes are. Mm-hmm. To people in the, in the lean community, this book is basically all about the left side of the A3. But for people that are not in the lean community, this is just about how can we... Um, short circuit uh, or prevent ourselves from jumping to solutions that are most likely going to be uh, inadequate, ineffective, and perhaps uh, even detrimental. Yeah. And, and I, of course, mean no offense to lean geeks. I have a t-shirt that says lean geek. Uh, <laughs> Dan, you don't, you, you decide if you want to um, bear that mantle of, uh, of, of, well, you're an engineer. So by definite, you already have the second half, even if not yeah. the first. Fair enough. 
I'm just a geek geek, but I'm, I'm different kinds of geek. But, um, you know, to our listeners, I mean, th- this may be a book, like when I read it, I'm thought, okay, yeah, this makes sense. This resonates with me. I like the way you're articulating this. For some people, this might be a book that they give to their boss or to an executive, maybe where they're trying to ease into this type of thinking. Yeah, I, I could see this. I could either see individuals using this or I could see people easily giving it to, to a boss or a manager or a supervisor to say, hey, what if we try doing something like this? Because there's no forms to fill out. Again, there's no, no big A3s, um, anything that might be intimidating. There's no lean jargon at all. And, um, and I think that the way I've written it, it's very short. The book is about 60 pages. Um, and that's including pictures, yeah. <laughs> pictures and graphics. And I intentionally wanted to be short because I wanted people to be able to read this, not on an airplane flight, but I wanted to be able to read it over lunch, something really simple so that anyone would look at it instead of putting it on the shelf. They might say, yeah, I'm on the train for a half hour going home. I could totally, I could totally read this and see if there's anything to learn. And you know, I have to say, I was I was uh, inspired a little bit by some of uh, by Seth Godin's books. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is very different. One is shorter than anything I've written. Again, it's about sixty pages on a five by eight book or five by seven, mm-hmm. and it's written in a much more conversational style than anything I've written. And I realized, you know, Seth has sold millions and millions of books. He probably knows something about writing, and maybe I could uh, I could I could stand to steal a, a page from his playbook. Yeah. Um, and present ideas that are powerful, but in a way that's simple and accessible. Um, just an easy on-ramp to the notion of problem solving um, in a new way in it for, for most people. So, you know, in, in the book, you talk about, you know, some examples and, and maybe you can share a few, whether they're, they're from the book or other examples, or we can brainstorm together. You said, in the book, when you don't understand the real problem and you're jumping to conclusions, you tend to reach for one of three solutions. One, shiny new technology. Two, reorganizing. Or three, spending money. Tell us yeah. more about that. Well, this comes from either conversations I've had with people or painfully from personal experience. In terms of shiny new technology, and this was really the genesis of the book. It was a story told by um, by Rich Sheridan, who you know from, from Menlo Innovations. Yeah. Um, he told me about a client that, uh, or potential client that wanted an, an iPhone app. And Rich said, well, you know, I, I understand you want an iPhone app, but you know, the way we do it here at Menlo is I send my high-tech anthropologists out to understand what the real problem is and what the users need, and then we can start doing it. And he did that. He found that the problem that the guy was facing had nothing to do with technology. Uh, it had to do with the bonus system. And mm-hmm. no amount of technology would have solved anything. And when Rich told him that, the guy said, yeah, yeah, but I really want an app because an app is new and it'll fix stuff. Right. And of course it didn't at all. The reorganization comes from something that I've lived through twice, maybe three times. And that is, and we've seen this all the time, that uh, companies say, well, sales are down, so we're going to reorganize. We're going to change the way, whether we go, maybe we go from a business unit structure to a matrix structure. Maybe we go from matrix to, to uh, shared services. I mean, there's all kinds of things people change. And the business card manufacturers, the printers do really good because everyone changes their title. But the truth is customers don't really care how you're organized. You could be in, vertical, in functional silos or you could be organized in value streams. And there are obviously pros and cons to both. The customer doesn't care. Are you providing the right product at the right price at the right time? It doesn't matter how you're organized. As long as you can do it, 
wonderful. And then the, the, the spending the money, this is something we've all seen. Um, and uh, I think for me, it was most impactful, a story that uh, Kevin, our mutual friend, Kevin Meyer, over at Gemba Academy told me once, back in the day when he had a real job and he wasn't working at Gemba Academy, he was working for a, um, a company in the biomedical device uh, space. Right. And he was trying to, this is actually his introduction to Lean, uh, his factory was far, far, far behind on orders for its customers, and uh, the company decided to spend $2 million on more, uh, I think it was injection molding machines, perhaps. Uh, I'd have to look at the book and see what it was. Right. And it turns out that they didn't actually need more machines at all. It had to do with maintenance and fast changeovers and things like that. Right. And Kevin, hats off to him, he started, he went to, he, to see Doc Hall and he learned everything he could about, about lean and, and rapid changeover and he embedded himself with the AME. And by the time the machines came in about nine, eight or nine months later, they'd spent $2 million. And he's like, I, I don't need these machines. I'm doing just fine. We're all caught up. Right. Uh, and I'm sure you, your time back in, back in the day at GM, you saw similar things where people were buying new machines or spending money on all kinds of stuff. Oh, in healthcare. Um, so yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll share an example. But first, I was going to say, yeah, Rich Sheridan, he was on episode 189 of the podcast. If people want to go listen to him, we were talking about his book, Joy, Inc. And I, sh I should try to talk to him about his more recent book because it's been a while. Um, so Joy, Inc. is a fantastic book for sure. Fantastic. Really yeah. it's, uh, yeah. I had a chance to visit Menlo Innovations in Ann Arbor once. So you, you can tell it's a special special kind of place it really is it really is i mean you see that and it's it's although rich i think hates it when people say he's sort of a model place to visit because it's so wonderful all he sees are the flaws and everyone goes there and they're just awestruck by the the kind of leadership and visual management and and team uh, collaboration yeah. it's it's insane yeah so um, I encourage people to go check that out, leanblog.org slash 189. But yeah, I mean, what I've seen in healthcare over 15 years, and this is how I've articulated it, like the three solutions that people tend to jump to are more money, more space, more people. So more money might be we need more equipment, we, but, right. but more, more, more. And the one, one example that comes to mind a lot, like when I first started working in healthcare, it was in a lot of hospital laboratories. And the one solution that a lot of organizations had chosen was something called, a, it was an automated track system. So instead of individual analyzers that you would load tubes of blood into, they would all be put onto this giant, basically conveyor belt system. And you would just load all of the tubes in one loading zone. Uh -huh. And they would all creep down conveyor belts and get kicked into the correct machine or into a centrifuge if needed. So there's an assembly line of, of uh, test tubes running uh, and machines running assays. Yeah. Yeah. In, in a very automated, um, very automated way. Right. And so the argument sometimes for what well, we need the track system is, well, somehow this is going to help reduce turnaround times. The turnaround time problem of why the percentage of value added was very low was not due to a lack of automation. It was due to batching in mm -hmm. specimen collection and batching and pre-analytical processes. And so people would put in this track system and, and yes, I am that kind of engineer. I'm a stopwatch geek. You stopwatch a, a tube of blood and it's creeping down this conveyor much slower than a person could have just walked it, right? <laughs> so you spend millions of dollars on this track system that ends up slowing down a lot of your turnaround time. 
there would be maybe a claim of labor savings, but um, the core problem around turnaround time was then often solved by ripping out the track system and putting the machines <laughs> into what we might call a lean cell. And the idea of paying someone to um, carry a small batch of tubes is not the worst thing in the world compared to this millions of dollar capital expenditure. So, I mean, that, oh, that's, yeah. that's a solution that had been popular for a while. Right. I jumped to a conclusion that someone else has already come to, and maybe there's some group thinking in an industry and an idea spreads whether it should or not. That reminds me of a story, um, it, actually, of Martin Memorial Health System down in Florida. It was documented by, I can't remember who wrote it up. Maybe John Toussaint might have been involved, but it was published. Um, they were going to spend $300,000 on ventilators because they never had, the hospital of the nurses never had enough ventilators. It's, this is long before COVID-19, obviously, but they were out of it. They didn't have enough ventilators, but before they spent the money, they had, they, they had an internal, a team of internal folks uh, uh, who were understood lean. They said, before we spend the 300 grand, let's try to understand what's actually happening. What they found was at first, they actually were a little bit, had a slightly higher ventilator to patient ratio than most hospitals of comparable size, just a little bit higher. Um, and of course the shortage wasn't caused by lack of ventilators. It was that the, no one could find the ventilators. Yeah. So nurses were stashing them in hallways and closets and in, in stairwells just to make sure they had their ventilator when they needed it. Right. And so it wasn't a lot. The problem was framed, of course, as a, the problem is a lack of ventilators. The problem wasn't the lack of ventilators. The problem was we don't have a way of actually ensuring that the ventilator, once it's done being used by the patient, gets to a central place where people can get it. Um, but to your point, the, fa the, the initial response is, oh, well, you know, you buy more ventilators, you put in a multi-million dollar uh, test tube uh, uh, assembly yeah. conveyor machine because that's clearly the way to do it. On a small level, I worked with a company years ago. Uh, my background, of course, is in the sporting goods and outdoor business. And the customer service folks were really struggling because it was taking the... It was taking the company a week to turn around uh, customer uh, chargebacks. So, for example, if there's a defective product or if you sh uh, ship something wrong, the customer calls you up and says, you know, that maybe it's Dick's Sporting Goods says, hey, listen, I, I, you know, you owe me $50 or $100, whatever. It would take them about a week to process the, the, the ref refund. And the head of the customer service department said, well, you know, we do this all manually. You know, the customer service guy writes down a, on a piece of paper, he brings it over to me, and it would be so much easier if it was all done electronically, if we could tie it into Oracle or SAP or whatever they were using. And at first blush, it sounded like it makes sense. Well, sure, if we could automate it instead of paper forms, walking it from desk to desk, that'd be great. But when we looked at the process, and this is to your point about how long it takes to a, a conveyor belt to move an assembly, uh, a, a test tube versus a, a human being, the delay wasn't in the writing out the, the filling out the piece of paper or approving it. The paper sat in the manager's inbox for somewhere between three and five days. Right. Just sat there. He didn't do anything. And, you know, he had a lot of things coming in, but he didn't have a special inbox marked, you know, chargebacks process hourly or process twice a day or whatever. And had he, had they turned it into something that would have been electronic, it would have sat in his email inbox instead of his paper inbox for a week. And they would have been in exactly the same place, but it would have taken him four months of 
custom software customization and Oracle consulting to, to, act, to end up in exactly the same place that they were. Yeah. Yeah. So sure we could spend money. So, um, and you, you, you use an example there. I know, you know, you did it for a reason. Um, and I think we're in agreement here that saying lack of something is not a good way to frame a problem statement. Can you talk about that? Yeah. You know, um, this is something, of course, you hear a lot. We don't have enough time. We don't have enough money. We lack enough people, whatever it is. We don't have enough space. Um, you never have enough of those things. You never have enough. Even Google doesn't have enough money. <laughs> even he, the largest organization in the world doesn't have enough space or enough people. And I think that it's easy to look at that because it's the, it's a, it's, it's the simplest way to phrase the problem. We don't have enough of this. But what it means is that you always end up with this first order solution that fails right? Um, because of the underlying factors. And I think within managing, I'm not sure if it's in managing to learn, but certainly within the, the lean community, when we talk about A3s, we do talk about this quite a bit, this idea of um, saying you don't have enough of something that's really just a clever way of phrasing your solution as the problem. Right. It's the inverse of the solution. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so I think that's certainly one thing to be careful of as we're working with, with um, problem statements. I think an, a, way, a way that I found often useful to, to promote the idea of good problem statements is to talk about open vistas versus cul-de-sacs. And what I mean by that is if your problem statement leads you down one road and only one road towards a solution, mm -hmm. you probably have the wrong problem statement. A problem statement should be opening up avenues of exploration. Mm. So if you say the problem is we don't have enough, um, we don't have a conveyor system to analyze the, the blood samples, the only thing you can do is get a conveyor system. Now, if, only, the prob if the problem is framed in terms of turnaround times are too long and it's delaying patient discharge or diagnosis, maybe right. that's a better problem statement. Right, because now we could talk about staffing, we could talk about, certainly we could talk about machines and automation. We could talk about the, the where, where the lab is physically located compared to the patients. Uh, we could talk about how long it takes the nurses or whoever it is bringing the blood samples down. Uh, at one hospital, actually, I worked at, they were having some issues with turnaround time as well. And it turns out that nurses, especially the, the, the overnight shift, they take the, they take the blood samples. Um, and then maybe they'd stop for a cup of coffee. Or talk to someone, <laughs> but the clock for that the turnaround time starts when you take the blood sample, not when it gets to the lab. Right. So you know, but if you say, well, we have to get faster machines, then all you can do is get faster machines. And so I think the notion of being able to to reflect back at your your problem statement and say, is this offering me a lot of different avenues to explore? That's kind of a a good check to make sure or to think about whether you're, you're actually on the right track with a good problem statement. Another, another check that's useful is to go back to the data. So saying we need an automated machine or we don't have an automated machine or a machine breaks down too often is not the data. But to use your example, um, we, we, our turnaround time is you know, uh, 72 minutes and we've promised that we'd be 60 minutes or uh, patients are waiting 50% of the time or patients are unhappy. Okay, great. Now I've got something that I can work with. I can clarify it. I can, I can measure it. We don't have to measure everything, but, but to be able to 
to, but if you can measure it, then we have something that's concrete. And again, by, because we're talking about numbers and data, it doesn't point us towards, doesn't push us down the road towards a specific solution. So you talk about some of this nuance of um, maybe you don't always need data or, you know, I've, I've, I think I've seen organizations get in trouble or they struggle where, like you said earlier, a, the A3 format can be intimidating. Um, and then sometimes I've, I've heard people say, well, that, the, 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 that problem solving model seems like overkill in these certain situations. I'm like, well, that might, that might be true. Um, so I'm curious, how would you break down or help identify when is something a quote unquote, just do it, or I like to, I'd rather say a, a just PDCA it or yeah. just PDSA it. Um, but, but when, when should we have a bias toward just going and testing something? And when do we know when we need to be more rigorous and spend more time on framing the problem? That's a really good question. Um, you know, the, the easy answer is to say if the building's on fire, you know, you don't necessarily want to do it, but you don't often see flames. Um, you know, I'm not sure how to answer that, Mark. What, what do you think? I feel like this might be better for discussion than for me to, to pompously bloviate on the, on the topic. Well, so, so I'll, we, we, we can both bloviate. How's that? <laughs> So, um, but you use the example of firefighting. And so one of the, the silly cartoons that I've um, had created um, in collaboration with an artist, I've posted it on um, Lean Bog is a cartoon about firefighters um, doing an A3. Have you, have you seen this? I seem to remember it. Yeah. But here, um, since we're doing a video podcast, let me just. Um, you can actually pull it up. I can share my screen real quickly. How exciting. Um, I apologize to the audio listeners, the audio only listeners, but you can go to leanblog.org slash 365. And so here's the cartoon. And in the first panel, there's a firefighter. He says, hey, you know, one's, he's saying to another firefighter, help me get this hose started. And then the second <laughs> firefighter is holding an A3 that says, you know, problem statement, a fire, question mark. And the firefighter, you know, he says, don't jump to solutions. <laughs> and the other firefighter, you see the building burning. Oh, right. We're supposed to get consensus on the plan phase first. Um, so that's it's sort of an exaggerated, silly example. No one's going to start breaking out in A3 when there is a literal fire that has to be contained. But I, I think sometimes, like, and again, I'm not discounting the thesis of your book, that we're better served by not jumping to conclusions um, in a vast majority of cases. But you know, I, I would propose, and I want to hear what you think is, if there's a relatively small problem that has a relatively obvious and easily testable countermeasure, and you can test that countermeasure, and if it doesn't work, you can you can click undo, if you will. Like that might be a time to just try it or just PDCA yeah. it. But sometimes we think a problem's simple and we just try something and we realize, oh wow, we don't understand this at all. Let let's go back and do an A3. I've, 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 I've seen a lot of scenarios of, of, you know, along those lines. You know, what you say makes sense. I guess I, I think in light of that, I would add, well, how urgent is it to solve it right now? So if the building is on fire, literally or metaphorically, you, you by all means, go try something immediately um, because you really can't afford to wait. But if it's something that's been a chronic problem over the course of weeks or months, if it you spend a day or half a day or two days, it's probably, it's not really going to matter as a, in terms of having a major effect on the company. Mm -hmm. So I think, 
um, how long it's been going on and, and, and how urgent it seems. And I think we can determine urgency pretty easily. You know, we know it when we see it for sure. I think also um, there's probably an element of the what's the what's the risk or the cost of yeah. jumping to a conclusion. Um, you know, if it, you're jumping to a conclusion and it's a three million dollar bet, maybe you want to spend a little time. But if it's jumping to a conclusion, it's 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 twenty five cents or three dollars or a ream of paper at Staples or something. Right. Well, all right, what the heck? You know, give it a shot. So in that lab example, like literally this multi-million dollar equipment, here's the kicker. I think in some of these hospitals, whoever decided to put in the track system was claiming a positive ROI for putting it in. And then you could also claim a positive <laughs> ROI for taking it out. Like you shouldn't be able to double dip that way. That does not seem right. You know, in lean hospitals, you actually wrote about one of these things. It's an example I use in my book um, about the hospital that, uh, where patients were complaining about noise in the hallways mm -hmm. yeah. uh, at night. And so, so <laughs> they put in carpeting everywhere to, to quiet things because, of course, wheels on linoleum are, are loud. Um, it turns out it was really just a matter of having doors open with t TVs on very loud. And if you close the doors, everything was good. And uh, in the meantime, the, the, the supreme irony, as I recall you pointing out, is that the the, the the hospital was really big on, on promoting the cows, the computers on wheels and bringing things along with the nurses. Right. But with the carpeting, it made it really difficult to do that. So they, they installed the carpeting, for which which cost money and didn't solve the problem, but Created fought, uh, it, it, you know uh, worked against another one of the organizational mandates to start dragging computers along with you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that, that was probably somebody jumping to a conclusion. And I think that situation with the carpet was compounded because the person jumping to the conclusion was very disconnected from the frontline work. It was like literally like in the C-suite where yeah. that decision was being made without input from the people who are really there dealing with the situation. So maybe I, you know, I'll ask you to, to elaborate on that in terms of, you know, if, if someone in the organization identifies a problem how do you decide who, you know, who are the right people to go and, and help properly define that problem if, if, when, when that's needed? Well, you know, I don't, I obviously the, the lean answer is the people closest to the problem. Okay. That's fine. Certainly we want people there to, to help define it, but th there's nothing wrong with the CEO or the VP or, you know, a board member coming in to help define the problem. As long as he or she is willing to actually, uh, go to where it's occurring so that he or she can can see himself right and I think that's where there because let's face it by and large if you've made it to the point where you're a board member or you're the CEO or the VP of X Y of something you're probably pretty competent you're probably pretty smart you're almost certainly experienced um, not always, of course, and you bring your own biases and blinders with you, but you probably have seen an awful lot of stuff in your day. And so the perspective you can bring, even though you're an outsider, is valuable. The problem is when you're using that perspective in a vacuum. And yeah. so you're working off of, of, uh, of data, but no facts. And that's a, real, that's a real issue. Yeah. So I think I know what you mean by that. But can you elaborate on that? You know, some listeners might be wondering, what do you mean data versus facts? You know, this is something interesting you asked that because a friend of mine uh, was really confused about that. And honestly, I was a little confused about that too when I first heard that. 
So data are numbers. Um, data is, is, tells you that an employee attrition rate, say, is higher than an industry average. Uh, but facts, when you spend the day in the office where people work, show that the office is kind of dark and unpleasant and there's a smell and there's no space for quiet reflection. And uh, the company outsourced facility service to services to, they don't do a good job of cleaning the bathroom. Um, data can tell you, for example, that customers applying for a mortgage forget to fill out certain parts of forms. And therefore the bank employees have to follow up, you know, with customers and call them up and say, I need this information. But facts, which is close examination of the form and direct observation of uh, of an, of an applicant while filling out the form shows that the form is really poorly laid out and it's cluttered and it's easy to miss the box. Um, you know, in a, in, a, in a factory setting, data tells you how often a machine breaks down on an assembly line or what the OEE is, but the facts show you that the machine is dirty, it's covered in oil and it hasn't been cleaned and maintained, which is an entirely, gives you a much different understanding. And to me, data is kind of, without the facts is, kind of anemic, it's two-dimensional. It's, um, it's literally and metaphorically a black and white view of the world. Mm. Facts without the data gives you color and, and texture, right? But it doesn't give you the detailed insight that you're gonna need to solve the really complicated problems because you do need the data. Yeah. So you need both to marry both that, the facts and the data, bring them together so that you get a holistic understanding of what's actually happening. And I think that is the first road, that's the road or the first step down the road towards coming up with a really understanding the problem yeah. and then eventually coming up with solutions or, counterme or countermeasures that can, get, can effectively address that problem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, another thing that comes to mind is that, you know, data can be inaccurate for one reason or another. Um, measurement really error, distortion of the data, intentional or otherwise, where facts are... Um, hopefully indisputable, true yeah. or not true, right? That's a good point. I actually didn't think about the distortions of the data or just the poor measurement or there's all kinds of issues that, that can make data le somewhat less than 100% uh, reliable. But yeah, you're absolutely right. You look at the data and you might miss something really important. You, tur you, know, you turned me on to um, bar rescue. <laughs> yeah. um, and there are, these, as, there are these episodes, I mean, leaving aside the, you know, the, the cheesy aspect of it. In a lot, a lot of, of yelling and drama, yeah. There's a lot of drama and yelling. But the notion of, you know, the, the data says that uh, the bar sales are down or that, that beer, that there's, there's uh, um, what do you call shrinkage of inventory or whatever. Um, the facts reveal that the manager is out there comping the cute women all the time with drinks. This is from season two, by the way. Um, Swanky Bubbles was the episode. Yeah. Um, and he, he's comping women drinks all the time, which one does it, therefore they generally don't tip on it. So everyone is angry that their tips are being cut down. Um, and he messes up the, the order of drinks coming into the, into the bar and they have real problems keeping up with, with demand. Um, and we're not even talking about the facts of, you know, the dirty fryer and things like the various health, health issues. Um, but you get to see the texture of things in a way that you don't with just facts. The fact that the bar in that particular one, for example, in Swanky Bubbles, was so narrow that the bartenders couldn't pass each other from one side to the other. And it made it nearly impossible to refill the bar, restock the bar, or to serve customers the way they needed to. 
but you wouldn't get that just by looking at the facts, the fact, the data, the data shows you that the, this is alcohol sales. This is the profit margin and something's wrong. Well, fire the bartenders, I guess. Yeah. No, that's not necessarily the problem. Although it being a reality show, that was part of the problem. <laughs> part of the problem. Yeah. So you've got a manager giving away um, drinks. This is, we'll leave a rhetorical question. What problem was he trying to solve? We can leave that to, <laughs> we shouldn't <laughs> speculate. Um, but, uh, so, um, yeah, Bar Rescue is interesting because you know, I haven't watched it in a while, but John Taffer, um, you know, he doesn't just come in with solutions. Like the show is a little bit in the mode of John Taffer is the expert and he is his, and he and his team will come up with a new name, a new concept, a new decor, a new menu, new training. You know, like it's very much the expert comes in and solves it. So he's maybe, I mean, so he says he goes by data. He, he looks at uh, market that they're in and competitors and demographics. And in early seasons, they talk a lot about bar science. But, you know, uh, yeah, I wonder how much is he jumping to a conclusion or there's this trap, maybe part of the back to the title of your book, The Conclusion Trap, when John Taffer, even if he has the correct conclusions, the bar owners often revert back to what they had before, even though that business was failing. Yeah. It's interesting to see. I think that I mean, you with in Bar Rescue, you see the real shortcomings of the expert coming in and solving the problems, as opposed to enabling the people who are in the front line to come up with their own solutions or countermeasures because they don't own it; they're not invested. Um, you've written about this many times. They are um, compliant, but they're not committed. Right. Some of the changes he makes, of course, are are. You know, it's taking advantage of, of his experience. For example, wh where where's the TV in the bar? <laughs> and what are they looking at? And how far away are they from the bar? And things like that, which there's probably some really good uh, good rule of rules of thumb. Of, you know, people mm -hmm. should be looking this way and not that way or whatever it happens to be. Yeah. But he... Um, but again, he, he, so he makes those physical changes when the bars, when the guys come in with their sledgehammers and redecorate the bar. But getting the commitment is really hard to saying that we're going to act differently. The manager's going to be there and, you know, he'll be, he'll, in one of the episodes, the manager tend to sort of lose focus and he would just, or the owner, he would just sort of sit in a chair instead of making sure that the, the Heineken keg was, was refilled or that things were being brought out of the cooler or whatever needed to be done. He was very much, he just lose focus. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, kind of thinking back to the type of work that you and I do, whether we're calling it A3 problem solving or, or just going through um, a methodology like you describe of, you know, having a way of, of, of spending more time on a problem statement and creating a good problem statement. Do you ever find, um, or can you think of situations or, or, or why clients might sometimes get impatient and so what, wait, you're, you, we're, this is going to take too long. You're guiding me through the process. You've done this before. Why don't you just tell us what the answer is? Yeah, uh, you see this, I, I see this quite a bit. And uh, especially since in general, although I don't work this way, in general, a lot of clients are used to bu uh, buying consulting services by the hour, sort of like a plumber. Mm -hmm. um, I always work on the project fee, irrespective of how long it takes. So that takes some of the pressure off. Yeah. But for sure, I always say to them, look, you know, it's 
teaching a person to fish, you want to fish or do you want to learn or do you want to learn to fish? It seems to me that the last thing you want to do is spend a crap ton of money with me, having me come in all the time. And sure, we can fix it but today, but that's not going to fix it tomorrow. And tomorrow there's going to be something else. And so it seems like it's really worth the time to try to figure, to have you figure it out yourself. Now, to be fair, I think I'm not as good as some people like Dave Verbal or Katie Anderson or probably you in terms of asking questions. I tend to maybe talk more than I should and ask fewer questions or give more directions and, and ask fewer questions than I would like. Um, but I do try to move them towards that. And I think usually they're respectful of the intent, especially mm -hmm. since there's no meter running. That, again, that, that really obviates the problem or, and makes them trust me because you know, as long as they're not paying the extra to be there for a full day instead of two hours, right. what do they care? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think, I mean, there, there, there's a balance, right? I mean, I think there's a time and a place, like you were saying earlier, if it's a really urgent problem, maybe we need to have more of a bias for action. Even if it's not the best long-term solution, let's do something now. And then yeah. we'll come back and we'll do the root cause analysis on what caused the fire after the fire has been put out you know, that, 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 that can wait. And we've got to remember to follow up on that and not just be done when we put the fire away. And I also think there's a, a balance and a time and a place for coaching by asking questions. Like there, there's, there's, you know, um, Ed, Edgar Schein's humble inquiry approach. Well, yeah. if you overuse that, that can really annoy clients or, or people you're working with. Um, I, I think there's a time and a place for, for making a well-placed suggestion in a way that's not taking ownership of the problem away from people. Like what I've learned yes. from certain approaches to, to counseling is if someone asks you, well, hey, just tell me, what do you think we should do? You, you can answer that in a way that says, well, let me tell you about something that worked in one situation. Now you're not assuming it's, tra you're not assuming it's transferable. And you, you might share the situation and then follow it up asking, well, what do you think about that? Yeah. So you know, don't don't let someone pawn off or outsource the problem to you is what I would recommend as a coach or as a consultant. Yeah, and, and it does very much depend on what what the what your role is supposed to be. You know, I used to be a uh, middle school, no, a high school cross country coach. Um, so coach is in the is in the title, but we would have gotten nowhere if I said, Hey, what do you guys think you should run today? <laughs> or why are you thinking you should do a five miler today instead of an eight miler? Um, you know, they, my, the kids were relying upon my experience and knowledge as a former competitive runner and as a coach to say, this is the structure of, hey, this is today's workout and this is this week's and this is how we're going to work the season. Um, and of course they could always ask questions and try to understand why we're doing it in a certain way. Um, to ask them for their opinions on it would have been pointless. We never would have gone anywhere. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think there's probably a, uh, an analog to that in certain business cases. Um, you know, I, back to Bar Rescue, sorry. Again, I remember the one episode where he said, your TVs are all in the wrong place. He could have said, well, why do you, where, why do you have your TVs here? What were you thinking? But it's far better to, I think in something like that, it's easier for, for Jake Tapper, whatever his name was, to say, John Taffer. Hey, listen, yeah. Taffer, yeah. hey, here's where the TV should go. You always want him here because what it does is increase um, people looking at each other and communication, more socialization, and therefore people, when they talk and they socialize, they drink more. Great. Right. So I'm going to solve the problem for you. Yeah. Yeah. 
And so, yeah, do you define the problem in terms of the problem is the TVs are in the wrong place or the problem might be something deeper? Uh, of, I, I don't know, you know, the scenario, but I'm trying to think of an example. Um, um, or I think in one episode, maybe it was swanky bubbles or, you know, um, the problem is um, the bar stools have backs on them. Like, well, that's true. Well, no, maybe the problem is the, the bar stools are too big and people right. can't get through and people can't interact. If I remember right, that's a solution that John Tafford tended to come back to is, oh, you need stools without backs. Right. Maybe it depended on the bar if it was really crowded. You know, some people might say, oh, but it's not as comfortable. I guess it depends on the situation, right? So maybe that, that's, that's where, you know, you would come back and, and say, um, well, here's something that worked for another bar. How do you think that would work here? But John Taffer really says, no, here's what you need to do. Right. And as I recall, his big issue with this stools without backs is that if they're bigger, you get fewer, you get one fewer seat at the bar, mm -hmm. which could be a problem. On the other hand, if it, the seats are more comfortable, people might stay longer and have another drink. So maybe if maybe you you know you could skin the cat another way you could say okay I'm going to increase the price of my drinks by a dollar, which people might not notice and they're going to be more comfortable. So it's okay overall I'm going to end up with with a wash in terms of revenue and profit because uh, even though I've got fewer seats. Yeah. So but John has his his solution. Yeah. <laughs> which is I mean, stools with no backs. Yeah. And and he has certain technology solutions, some of which are sponsors of the show, but like one of the things he installs, you know, if somebody would say, oh, the problem is a lack of a bottle metering measuring system. Like, well, you could, there's a solution where you can put these pourers that have sensors or however it works. You know, the problem statement might be bartenders are giving away too many free drinks. Right. So putting in technology, like this is where I'm skeptical around, like, is it really a technology problem? Or is it something related to the culture of the organization? Like I think of, um, do, you, do you know Paul Levy, who used to be CEO at Beth Israel uh, Deaconess? Beth Israel Deaconess, right? Yeah. So I remember one thing in, in, in when he was blogging as a hospital CEO, um, sometimes people would frame the problem as, quote unquote, nurses are screwing around on Facebook too much. So the solution that's commonly posed is, well, we're going to just block access to okay. Facebook. Right. Well, then Paul realized, and when he was blogging about this, iPhones were becoming popular. He's like, you can block it on the corporate network, but they're going to use, if they, if they have, to, if they're going to use Facebook, they're going to use cellular data and they're going to do it on their phone. So that solution doesn't really solve anything. You've got to step back and dig into it and ask why, why are they spending, time on, spending time on Facebook? Why are they disengaged? And I'm not blaming them for being disengaged, but like they're, they're, that sounds like the type of thing where it requires some deeper problem solving like you would talk about in your book. And I think I, I'm not, I would, I would step back and say not so much deeper problem solving, better problem framing. Fair right? enough. Yeah. yeah. Because it depends if you say our nurses spend a lot of spend uh, time, time on Facebook, they shouldn't be spending or something like that. That's not the most artful way of putting it. Right. Well, now there's all kinds of possible countermeasures. You could block it. <laughs> you could find out why they're spending it time on Facebook. Maybe we phrase it to say nurses are not engaged or nurses are so stressed at work. The work environment is so stressful. They have to unplug and, mm -hmm. and spend time on Facebook. That leads to do down an entirely different road than saying nurses have uh, easy access to Facebook. Yeah. Or uh, we have to stop nurses from having access to Facebook, something like that. Right. Those yeah. are, that's, it's an entirely different direction. Um, and it's a different understanding of the problem. 
And I think, you know, the, we see this with, um, all the time in the Wall Street Journal and every other newspaper with the just in time, right? Um, <laughs> well, they're blaming just in time for right. The, the problem wow. is that just in time uh, has uh, or the, we ran out because of just in time. That's actually a solution or or, or an answer. Um, but really, what we want to be saying is, how do we make uh, our our just in time systems aren't as resilient as we want, or or our, uh, our just-in-time systems can't, uh, uh, yeah, it's, uh, supply chains can't handle black swan events. Okay, that that leads you to all kinds of different possibilities. Yeah. So yeah, what we're looking at now, or you know, recently, or when this is published, still probably going on. Um, um, yeah, you know, the the the, the pandemic. Um, so uh, if. Uh, Nassim Taleb, if I'm saying his name. Yeah, right. The Black so Swan he's, guy. he's the one who coined the phrase Black Swan. I saw an interview where he said very clearly, this pandemic is not a Black Swan. It is a White Swan. We could have and should have predicted this and that there's no excuse for not being prepared. Like he says, you know, 9-11 was a Black Swan, even though there were probably some who warned and predicted. He said this was much more foreseeable and, and something where then we get step back and say, well, the problem is we don't have enough supplies. Um, so then you could step back and, and say, well, what was our plan for addressing this eventual likelihood? Not right. if we're going to have a pandemic, but when. Um, so we, you know, you, you could blame just in time. You could frame it as um, when we need to order more of something, our supply chain isn't responsive enough. Why is the, the supply chain not responsive enough? A lot of the supply chain is coming from China. And China's been hampered by coronavirus. And it's a really long, slow supply chain, even in the best of times. Um, it's interesting how people lock in on um, a cause or maybe likewise they, they lock in on a solution when they're going right. through what we might call problem solving or problem definition. I was just going to say one other thing. I really liked how you, you kind of steered it back toward problem definition. Because one other thing I've, I've heard a lot of people will say like, oh, we don't need problem solving training. We're really good problem solvers. What they really mean is that they are good at jumping to solutions. They're not good at problem definition. They're not good right. at evaluating and closing the loop. They're, they're, there's a lot of do. There's very little plan. And there's often no study and adjust. You know, there is a, um, I don't know if you saw this in the news, but as a result of the, the, the unemployment, both here and all over the world with COVID-19, uh, Denmark apparently has taken a very different approach towards uh, dealing with folks. They have, they're paying money to companies. They're paying, I think, they're telling companies, we will pay something like 80% or 90% of employee salaries. Just keep them on the payroll. 80-90%. So what we've done, of course, is we've pumped a ton of money into the unemployment offices, right? So when you think about it, to me, the there's an implicit framing of the problem, which is in the United States, we say, how do we help laid-off workers? Or our laid-off workers need a lot of help. So the framing is that our workers are laid off. In Denmark, Again, not that I've spoken to anyone there, but it would seem implicit that what they have done is say, how do we keep companies from laying people off? 
Right. It's a very the, different the one, approach. The one problem is framed as people have lost their jobs, therefore they need money, as opposed to framing it as companies can't make payroll. How do we solve that? Now, you know, in the U.S., there's the CARES Act that's been passed and companies are now applying for the, the PPP program, the payroll protection plan. I have no idea when those payments are going to start coming out, but people had to pay rent or their mortgage on April 1st. Right. Companies had rents due. Like, I mean, there, there are immediate real-term needs that um, I don't know when some of these solutions will actually kick in, but it's a different podcast it's, maybe. You know, I have to say one of the truly surprising things, uh, and I am by no means any sort of expert in, in government bureaucracies and, and the way that macroeconomics work and, and the economy is put together. But I keep thinking we're now with the CARES Act, part of it is giving people $1,200 or whatever it is, and, and people have to apply through their unemployment offices. And it seems to me that there are uh, whatever the number is, 100-something million workers. There are far fewer companies. It seems like it's just a lot easier to say to the companies, here's your money. <laughs> Now pay these people. Obviously, there needs to be some sort of oversight to make sure they're not just scamming the government and the taxpayer. Right. But there are fewer companies to deal with. You wouldn't have the same kind of three-hour waits uh, at the on the telephone with the unemployment office uh, because it's easier to reach the number of companies than it is to reach the number of people. Right. Uh, so it seems like we're we're trying to address the the, the problem from two sides. And um, so through the unemployment system, which has been expanded to include people who are independent contractors, right? gig economy people who traditionally wouldn't have been um, eligible, and then also um, addressing it through um, the IRS, which I think is sending out incentive uh, um, stimulus payments um, to to individuals. And then there's some of these payments, um, the emergency loan payment, and then the, the PPP Loans have to go through the bank. It's all very complex. So I don't know if it's an elegant, really complex, elegant solution. Um, maybe Denmark is onto something. Does that seem like a more more elegant solution with uh, less complexity? It seems that way to me. But who knows how the Danish economic system is put together? There was a, another. You know, I saw this uh, again. Another another way issue about problem framing. It was in the Wall Street Journal. Mm, 10 days ago, eight days ago, something like that. Uh, the guy who was writing was an op-ed column. Um, he has a kid at school in the Berkeley public school system. And the public schools have essentially, um, they haven't provided really any robust online at-home learning. And the reason is, according to him, that the, um, the as he spoke to the supervisor, she said, um, we, we know that there are poor people in the community who don't have internet access. Um, we don't, there are all these existing inequalities and inequities, and we don't want to exacerbate it by saying, okay, all you rich folks who have, uh, and, uh, who have uh, computer access, you're going to get all this stuff and the other kids know. So instead, we're just going to say, listen, you can, there's some, I don't know, TV show they can watch for half an hour a day or, or something like that. And to me, again, this is a problem of framing. The Berkeley school system is saying um, we don't want uh, we don't want to um, uh, we don't want our at-home learning to disadvantage poor students, which sounds okay. Yeah. But it it pushes you towards a solution of 
going to the lowest common denominator, which means not allowing the uh, wealthier students with better access to, uh, to move faster, to learn more. But what would happen if they said, we need to eliminate at-home learning? What would happen if you took the hotels that are empty and you put all the kids in the hotels? What would happen if you ask Google, and again, who knows whether this would work or not, hey, Google, can you provide uh, tablets, Chromebooks to everyone? Or could you talk to, the, to AT&T and say, hey, AT&T, for the next two months, for the rest of the school term, would you provide free uh, cell service to all these people? Most of them have phones. Maybe they could do enough of work just with their phones. They don't even need any new hardware. What would happen if they provided that? So what we're doing is, is reducing the at-home learning or making it free as opposed to saying, well, we need to eliminate the disadvantage. Yeah. Changes the focus of the problem, I think, or the, uh, and, and therefore the the, the countermeasures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, so um, it's a lot to to think about and chew on there, but yeah, I mean this this whole idea of problem framing, problem definition, um, really powerful notions, and you know I'm glad that you've written the book here. Uh, again, it's uh, the conclusion trap. Um, I, the, the, the paperback is available for ordering when we recorded this on, um, April 10th and the, um, the Kindle version may be available for pre-order or purchase by the time this is published. So I guess yeah. we just encourage people, what would you recommend? They can go, they can go look on Amazon, then go look on your website, which is. Yeah. Um, I have a, they can go to my website. I'll have a link there. I've set up a website for the book that has uh, downloads, um, called uh, theconclusiontrap.com, makes sense. And, and markovitzconsulting.com? Markovitzconsulting.com, theconclusiontrap.com, I'll have links for those things. And uh, again, it'll be available on Amazon, uh, and then I'll probably make it available at all the, your other online book places as well, but I have to, I have to sort of work my way through, through how to make that happen. Or more correctly, I'll have to ask you how to make that happen, Mark, since you're my, you're my Sherpa well, in okay. online publishing. Happy to help. Um, and if I'm if I'm ever jumping to conclusions, make sure you call <laughs> me on that. Okay. You betcha. I'll try to remember. Um, Keep me honest. So, um, well, thank you, Mark, for having me. This was just uh, this was so much fun getting to talk to you and doing another another podcast. It's been a long time, and I'm, it's always a pleasure to to talk about these things with you. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad we could do it um, again. If if people want links to the book and um, Dan's previous um, appearances here on, on the podcast, you can go to leanblog.org slash 365. Um, let's see, Dan was a guest at least on episodes 52, 135, 244. We talked about, yes, 2008. Holy moly. Yeah. The first one we did, old. we talked about your book, A Factory of One. In 20, I think I had more hair back then. Yeah, I, yes, <laughs> I do. Re, I do remember when I see these old pictures. And then we did a podcast episode 224 on your book, Building the Fit Organization. Got it. I invite people um, to go um, check those out as well. So, Dan, thanks a lot as always, and, and good luck with the book launch. Pleasure is mine. Thanks again, Mark, and stay safe. You too. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org.
If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.